Hello, Strange Seeds. This is the Primordia Podcast, your source for strange. I'm your host, Britt. Join me semi-weekly as we pull off our flesh suits and dive into the primordial waters of the mystical and magical, the downright freaky, the strange and bizarre, unsettling synchronicities, and the truly terrifying. You'll leave each episode with a list of reading recommendations if you feel so inclined to research further the topics we discuss, which I encourage you to do. Connect with a growing community of eclectic minds who strive to leave a more positive, compassionate imprint on this weird world we live in. So dive on in with us, and don't be scared. The water's fine. Welcome to XV Planets. Greetings, friends and fiends, and welcome back to XV Planets. Transmitting from the Black Lodge, as always, I am your host, Flood, and as always, I am very happy to be here to dive further into the weird with you. And I want to take a moment to wish you a blessed Samhain, a happy Halloween, or whatever fall festival, celebration, or ritual you partake in. I must admit, since taking the path of a paranormal investigator, this day means something very different to me now. Gone are the days of getting hammered at costume parties, because I feel like I live Halloween every day now. So when this season comes around, it truly is a time for spiritual growth and honoring the dead. And speaking of honoring the dead, tonight we begin our journey through the decks and hallways of the battleship USS North Carolina. The XV Planis field team did an overnight investigation back in August of this year. We will be getting into our experience on the ship in the next episode, but tonight, as is tradition, we want to do a deep dive into the history of the location we investigated. And I am pleased to say that we have a very special guest to do just that tonight. Halsey was our guide and emergency contact for our investigation, and I have to tell you, friends, this guy's knowledge of the ship is far more than our feeble attempts at historical research could ever uncover. So without further ado, let's get into it. Alright folks, at this point I am very happy to have back into the Black Lodge tonight. We have the other prong of my tuning fork, Walker, is with me. And uh, we have a very special guest tonight, Halsey Hoosier, who was our tour guide and our, uh, well basically our emergency contact in case anything went wrong during our investigation of the USS North Carolina. When we typically do these investigation episodes, we always want to take at least one or two to dive into the history of it. And Halsey, your knowledge of the ship and uh, the love that you have for it was what made us reach out to you. So uh, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. I appreciate you having me here tonight. I look forward to uh, talking about the history of the ship and hopefully we can uh, answer some questions and get some information out there that the public don't really uh, know or understand or we can we can. The main goal is we can build up interest for future generations of the ship. Absolutely. That is one of the reasons that we're doing this. Now, before we get diving into the history of the ship, uh, could you talk a little bit about yourself to uh, introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. Uh, Again, my name is Halsey Hoosier. Uh, I've been a volunteer at the Battleship North Carolina since 2014. Um, In my volunteer capacity, uh, I've served as a member of the Living History Crew. Uh, Living History Crew is a division of the volunteers on board the battleship, and it is our goal to interpret and represent the battleship North Carolina 
as she was in World War II. And it's, and through that, uh, to tell the stories and not, um, not in the role of a reenactor, but to just bring the ship to life. So when visitors come on board the ship, they can interact with sailors. They can interact with uh, individuals that look the part of a World War II sailor. So we wear the uniforms. We carry out daily duties. We're assigned to divisions. We each have our specialty thing that we're assigned to. So in each thing that we're in, it's our own responsibility to research, know the history, have the background knowledge and a functioning working knowledge of that as well so we can engage with the public and and, the, and draw that interest in. And then I also work part-time for the battleship with the state of North Carolina as a night watchman. Uh, and through night watch, we are the uh, safety and security of the ship. Uh, when the daytime staff goes home, it's our duty to come in, um, secure the ship, secure the parking lot, uh, secure power to the ship at night. And then in the morning times, we reopen the ship, uh, bring the ship back to life that way she is ready to go in the morning for the visitors that we're going to have for the day that's amazing how long have you been with uh with the museum i've uh i've worked uh on the part-time staff since july of 2021 so last year and then i've been a volunteer with the ship since 2014 oh wow okay so you definitely have a history with this place I've always had an interest in the ship. I uh, grew up coming to the battleship, being from North Carolina. Our um, our summer beach vacation centered around going to the battleship. Uh, so that was, I've always had a love for the ship. My dad was former Navy, so that was where we always went. Uh, we planned our trip around going to the battleship. So go, grew up going to the battleship, and then now having that connection of, of working there, volunteering there, uh, I can't think of just a, a better hobby. Yeah, that's awesome. I definitely can relate also being from North Carolina. It's 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 something that I think everyone does. It's like a voyage to the battleship, the sea, and being in downtown Wilmington is so cool to, you know, even from the street looking out on it, you know, it's right. an awesome spot. Well, uh, let's uh, let's dig into it. So this, this ship has a very, very colorful history. It's, uh, I mean... It was a behemoth whenever it first uh, whenever it first hit water, and it was a game changer for uh, for the U.S. Navy at the time, wasn't it? That's correct. Uh, when the the early design phase of what the Navy did not know what they wanted uh, in the 1930s, you know, we're, we're in between world wars. On the horizon, uh, military leaders knew there was going to be a conflict with Japan, um, so they had the Washington Naval Treaty. Um, and the countries were starting to um, not follow the Washington Naval Treaty. And then in 1936, the United States and Great Britain come up with the London Naval Treaty. And as soon as they come up with it, Japan says, we're not following that either. Uh, so Japan, the London Naval Treaty restricted weight. It restricted uh, types and how many of certain ships they could have. It restricted main battery size. Uh, so they completely broke it, and they went to a bigger gun caliber that was restricted by the London Naval Treaty, uh, which was 14 inches is what it re- was restricted to. Um, and so because – and in the treaty, it said if any nation breaks this treaty, you're allowed to go above and beyond what they break. There was a lot of parameters to it, um, but some of the biggest parameters were gun size and weight. Uh, and then the London Naval Treaty – limited battleships to 35,000 tons. So the North Carolina was 
began design in 19, early 1936 and was ordered in 1937. Uh, and because the Japanese had already broken the London Naval Treaty, uh, the North Carolina was designed from the beginning as a what the U.S. Navy later called the fast battleships. And mm-hmm. going into battleship design, pr- just a little back history so we're all kind of on the same page. Prior, yeah, to, North Car- prior to North Carolina, uh, battleships were designed completely different. And the best example today of a dreadnought-style battleship or a uh, the battleships leading up to North Carolina is the Battleship Texas. Uh, the Battleship Texas is a museum ship in Texas. Currently, she is in mothballs, uh, I'm sorry, not mothballs, but in dry dock, receiving uh, multi-million dollar repairs. She has been a long time in the water. But she is the only surviving example in the world of a dreadnought-style battleship. And uh, the other example you can think of are the battleships that were at Pearl Harbor. Uh, You had 14-inch main guns. A few of them had 16-inch main guns, but they were limited in quantity. Um, And these battleships were weighed roughly the same, 30,000 to 35,000 tons. But they were extremely slow in today's what we consider a fast battleship. Uh, top speed was around 23 knots. Um, they were the first ships of the all-or-nothing armor, but because of their their speed, their their design, they were much shorter. So North Carolina is 729 feet long. These battleships at Pearl Harbor uh, and the previous classes, they were in around 6 to 650, somewhere in that neighborhood, and had a, a very wide dra- uh, beam. So these ships did not have what... Uh, the design characteristics that allowed them their speed. And they also didn't have the propulsion systems either. The, uh, many of them were early coal fire ships that were converted in the twenties and thirties to oil fired ships. They didn't have the same turbines, the battleship, Texas. Uh, she actually has uh, pistons much. It's a piston driven engine. Um, mm-hmm. So a completely different design. And so Fast forwarding back into the North Carolina class battleship, she is what's known as a fast battleship. Uh, her target, they designed her to have a top speed of 28 knots, uh, which is roughly 33 to 35 miles an hour, just in that realm. Uh, nautical miles equal to one and a half miles an hour. Um, so the fast battleships, uh, the first class being the North Carolina class, and it consisted of the North Carolina, and her sister ship, the Washington. Uh, she was ordered in 1937. Uh, her keel was laid in um, uh, on October 27th, 1937, in the New York Navy Yard. And at the same time, her sister ship, Washington, her keel was laid in the Philadelphia Naval Yard. So they were built at two separate naval yards, um, and then an end result of the exact same ship. Uh, the North Carolina huh. was launched... Uh, June 13th, 1940, and she was placed in commission April 9th, 1941. little back note for North Carolina, she was originally designed to have a 14-inch main gun. And anybody that knows anything about the North Carolina, we have nine 16-inch guns. So during her build process and design process, she was going to be built with 14-inch main guns. So her armor was built to withstand an impact from a 14-inch round. It's kind of how the U.S. Navy built battleships in the time. So she is armored mm-hmm. against a battleship with a 14-inch main battery, but we have a 16-inch main battery. 
the reason was is because they were so far along and the materials had already been ordered for the armor that she was going to be built with a 14 inch with a armor system for 14 inches. Um, they could not cancel that. It was already there. So, but they were not far enough into the build process that they could not re gun the ship. So that changed her design quite substantially into having three 16 inch main battery turrets. Uh, and each turn is uh, has three guns apiece, so you have nine nine guns on the ship. Uh, and then again, and she was commissioned. They are massive. <laughs> they are, and w- we can talk a little bit about shells here in a little bit. Uh, what she shows, yeah, what definitely. she shoots, uh, range and uh, types of shells, or several different types of shells. But she was commissioned in April of ni- April ninth, nineteen forty one, in the Brooklyn Navy. Um, sorry, the New York Navy Yard, um, and you got to imagine this is 1941. So in the grand scheme of things, it's not that long ago, but it, uh, it is to us, um, you know, 80, 80 plus years ago. And mm-hmm. also you have to imagine this is a battleship, a class of battleship and a, just to look at it that no one has ever seen. If you look at all the ships at Pearl Harbor, the battleship, Texas, they have this, they all have this same, same look to them. The dreadnought-style battleships of all the countries around the world all had this same look to them. And then here comes the U.S. Navy with their new fast battleship design, and it's the North Carolina class. Completely (laughs) different, much larger, um, much higher speed. And at the time of her commissioning, she was the most powerful warship afloat. Right. Now, what was the top speed that uh, North Carolina could get? She was designed for 28 knots. Uh, she was designed for 28 knots, but um, during sea trials, which is between the uh, building of the ship and the Navy accept- accepting the ship, she had large vibration issues, her and her sister, both the Washington. Um, a lot of it had to do with uh, the blade design on the propellers themselves. Some of it had to do with the length of the shafts. Um because of the length of the ship was so greater than everything else before that she had shafts that were longer than any other battleship. So she had a huge vibration problem at high speeds. And if you look at original commissioning photos of the ship versus photos of, if you look at her now, you'll see some things that are a little bit different. You'll see bracing that has been added. Um, You'll see uh, additional bracing in the engineering spaces themselves for the shafts. And that was because of those vibration issues. And by adding the bracing uh, and fixing the arrangement of the props, she went through several different arrangements of her props. So she initially had uh, three and four bladed props, and then she went to, they swapped them for, that was a different layout, four bladed outboard, three inboard, and, and they played with that design for several attempts. And then she settled with a five blade inboard and a four blade outboard propeller arrangement. So she has four sets of propellers on the ship and that give them the least amount of vibration at high speed. So she could successfully do 26 knots with very little vibration. Um, but up around the 28 knot speed, she had, she still had obsessive, excessive vibration issues and they were never able to work that out with her or her sister ship Washington. But, uh, and that, that later on we'll talk about led to her decommissioning soon after the war. Uh, and then that problem was addressed and fixed through later class battleships. The later of the South Dakotas and the all of the Iowas, they had that resolved by them. 
Now, when you when you say vibration, do you mean like the the ship itself would actually just start to shake as it approached yes. higher speeds? Or yes, yeah? okay, yeah, they had such a vibration issue that it was um, the the large range find, range finders, which is the main uh, or, um, way to aim the main battery systems. Their own rollers, much like the main guns their own rollers and gyros and the vibration issue was so bad that it was, it was throwing the rangefinders off. They couldn't get a steady target at high speeds. So you can imagine the issues that that causes. Um, and part of these builders trials or these, um, acceptance trials that the ships are going through trying to work out these vibration issues and these equipment issues. Part of the North Carolina's name for those that don't know is the showboat. Uh, and she gained that name early in her career from her sister ship, the Washington. In 1941, um, the popular um, Broadway show was Showboat. And the North Carolina-class battleship being the, the new, all-inspiring, everybody wants to see it, um, the Washington was held in port, and the North Carolina went out time and time again for sea trials. So they would find the problem on the North Carolina and attempt to address it on the Washington and port. And then as the North Carolina would come in and go out, come in and go out, they were getting all the fame and attention. So one day when they were coming in, uh, the band of the battleship Washington started playing uh, the, the musical showboat and that name stuck through the entirety of the career of the battleship. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> oh man. So, um, so how many how many times did it go to to trial before it actually was uh, sent out? I don't I don't have a number on that. I know it was she was um, commissioned in April of forty one, and there were still several issues then. So from the time of her fitting out, when a ship is um, launched, and then she's not completed at that point, um, and then the ship will near a point where she's ready for builders trials or sea trials. And that's that they're testing different, different equipment, different this, that, and the other. And when she goes out for sea trials, the goal is to test every bit of equipment and functionality on board the ship. And this went on for months. Uh, and then typically by commissioning, all these issues are worked out, <laughs> but there, because this was a new design ship, uh, nothing was like it to go back to. Uh, they commissioned the ship in April of 41. And if you look at her commissioning photos, there's a lot of things missing. Radar suits, some of her rangefinders aren't there. Uh, so as they're working out and designing these pieces of equipment, she would go out, test them, come back in. And, and that went on for several months. Uh, and most of this was wrapped up prior to the start of World War II, which was for the United States. I say the start prior to the United States entering World War II, which was December. Mm -hmm. We were attacked on December 7th and, and officially entered on December 8th, 41. So let's, uh, let's actually talk about that for a minute. Let's talk about its time um, at sea during the war, because okay. it, uh, it was known for being, uh, I mean, it was intimidating, obviously for uh, the time. It was the first beast of its class, so to speak, that, um, uh, kind of sent out a warning signal to our opponents at the time. She, she did. And, and we'll touch. Uh, st so there was a little holdup getting the North Carolina to the South Pacific. So the United States is attacked by Japan in Pearl Harbor, December mm -hmm. 7th, 1941. So the immediate reaction by the, um, by the high command was let's get these 
this ship, the North Carolina and the Washington, to the Pacific. That wasn't to be. So when uh, on December 7th of 41, uh, it's, we're still the peacetime Navy. Uh, the North Carolina is tied up in uh, New York. Uh, her Most of her crew is on Liberty and is on Eastern Standard Time, 155 or so later in that afternoon, 3 o'clock, as, as, as information is now starting to reach the west the east coast of the United States. Uh, immediately, crews were recalled. Um, uh, Liberty was canceled. All leave was canceled. Uh, and they, as any other sailor, you know, 18, 19-year-old sailor, enlisted sailor, you know, we're getting ready to go to war. Well, the war didn't quite come to North Carolina yet. Um, she was actually held in the Atlantic fleet with her sister ship to Washington until June of 1942. And uh, the thought there was, was the German battleship Tirpitz, they was afraid that if the Tirpitz got out and got got through the British, that there was now there would now be a threat on the east coast of the United States by the German Navy. Uh, as we progressed into 1942, if you know anything about the South Pacific, it was not looking good for the United States Navy. We had taken a loss. We had it was not a loss. We lost a we the battle course was kind of a draw, but if a victory had to go somebody, it would have been the United States. But we lost a carrier at Coral Sea. We lost a carrier at Midway. And the battleship fleet is still on the bottom of Pearl Harbor. So in the early days of World War II, was very grim for the United States. Uh, had several major victories, but were quickly running out of ships and men and all that. So at that point, uh, a shift in equipment and supplies as the British were able to catch up to wartime needs, the United States started sending Atlantic Coast ships to the Pacific. And in June of 1942, the North Carolina was transferred to the Pacific Fleet, uh, arriving in Pearl Harbor. Um, she arrived in Pearl Harbor on July 11th, 1942. Um, and that, that was big uh, because July 1942, uh, she was the first battleship to pull into Pearl Harbor after the attack. You know, several other small ships, several carriers had pulled in, but the pride of the United States Navy was the battleships. So six, seven months after the attack, before they had a battleship pulled into Pearl Harbor, um, and this battleship had been on the uh, East Coast. Nobody in the West Coast had seen them. Uh, so you can imagine the morale booster that this brand new battleship pulling in Pearl Harbor caused. Uh, there are several videos. There's a one video in particular I think of on YouTube under the Critical Pass series, and it shows the salvage work going on at Pearl Harbor. And it, there's just there's rolling stock footage of these guys working on. I believe they're working on raising the battleship West Virginia, and all of a sudden the camera stops on what they're doing and focuses out to see up to to the harbor entrance, and here comes this battleship, and it says nothing about which one it is but it is North Carolina and, and it just shows everybody has stopped working. Uh, and there in several texts and books that you can read, uh, a lot of the crew members talk about coming into Pearl Harbor, uh, still the stench of burnt ships, um, was still there all everywhere. The stench that surrounded Pearl Harbor from seven months later of death was still there and talked about what type of horrifying experience that was. But then the sailors talk about the morale boost that just the, that one ship pulling into Pearl Harbor meant to these guys that were at Pearl Harbor. And that was kind of the, um, 
the shift was when ships started to arrive in Pearl Harbor. And the distinction of North Carolina being the first battleship to have that, it was uh, quite the scene. Um, and then shortly after July 42, so she arrived July 11th, and in August of 1942, she was she was attached to the Enterprise Carrier Group and was with her at Guadalcanal as the United States Marines were landing on Guadalcanal. So within a month of being transferred to the Pacific, she is in combat. Oh, wow. Okay. Now, um, how, mu- how much uh, time in battle did the ship see? Uh, she was at every major engagement from Guadalcanal to the end of the war. Uh, that is the distinction that she, in, in the Pacific, she is the only U.S. battleship uh, to participate in that much of it. Uh, she missed Coral Sea and she missed Midway. Um but she served from the beginning of the Guadalcanal invasion to the, to the, the invasion of homeland Japan. Um, in August of August 7th, uh, seen her first action. Uh, it was just escort action uh, off of Guadalcanal with the carrier groups enterprise. And then her baptism of fire. So they call it come on August 24th of 1942. Uh, prior to this point, um, it there was a ton of any aircraft guns on the battleship, North Carolina. But prior to this point, the awesome firepower that these ships could create had not really been seen in action, combat action. So August 24th was her baptism of fire, as they call. Uh, and uh, at that, she was with the carrier Enterprise, and her five-inch main battery, or secondary battery, excuse me, her five-inch secondary battery, which if you look on the ship, that's deterrence or the gun mounts on this either side of the ship. There's five on either side, and each gun has each gun mount has two guns, two five-inch guns for a total of twenty. Um, they put up so much anti-aircraft fire that the captain of the carrier Enterprise radioed over and thought that North Carolina had been hit because of all the smoke from her guns, and she hadn't been hit. It was just the uh, amazing amount of fire that she was able to put out. And that was the first time the U.S. Navy realized that uh, the battleship role went from more of a offensive position to a defensive position because of all the anti-aircraft gun and anti-aircraft support she could provide to a carrier battle group. Uh, August 24th uh, was also the first day of her first um, casualty of combat. Um, Sailor George Conlon, uh I don't want to pronounce his name wrong, but George Conlon, uh, he was a anti-aircraft gunner on 20 millimeter mount, and he was killed when a Japanese aircraft come in and strafed the deck of the battleship. So he was the first combat casualty on board North Carolina. And so casualties, that's something that really fascinated me because I, with it seeing so much, um, so much time like in battle it has a surprisingly low number of casualties uh correct me if i'm wrong it was a total of 10 people right correct and as and as we go out through the the chronological order or chronological order um I've, I've got some notes on each one but you're correct there was only there was only 10 sailors lost due to combat and and that type of action um in the grand scheme of things if you look at other ships of the u.s navy world war ii some lost hundreds. Uh, the greatest loss of life being on the Franklin. And you think of ships uh, like the Franklin, the Bunker Hill, the Indianapolis, 
these larger oh, ships. Oh, the Indianapolis is a harrowing story. Yeah. yeah. So you think about, you know, the hundreds and hundreds of sailors lost there and, and North Carolina lost 10, which is, which is just one life is, is tragic, but you know, you have a ship of, you know, in her years of service, roughly a little over 7,000 crew member, you know, rotating through the ship's life to only lose 10 due to combat. And then there were some others due to illness and injury, uh, falling overboard in port, stuff like that. But it was relatively a low number. So uh, after the Eastern Solomon's campaign, um, she was, uh, she was, the carrier enterprise was hit. So the North Carolina was detached and reattached to the uh, Hornet carrier group. Uh, and on September 15th, 1942, the North Carolina, while steaming with the Hornet carrier group, they were about eight to nine miles off of the starboard beam of the carrier wasp battle group. And they had realized that what looked like the carrier wasp was on fire. I seen a column of smoke coming up from the carrier. You got to imagine you're eight to nine miles away from another fleet or from another task force. So you don't, you really can't tell what's going on. A few minutes later, they start receiving reports of torpedoes were incoming. Um, so, they're starting to put two and two together. There's a submarine in the area. So the carrier Wasp was, there was a Japanese submarine I-19 fired six torpedoes at the carrier Wasp. Uh, three of them hit Wasp and Wasp actually, she sunk. Uh, large loss, uh, not too large of a loss of life, but several hundred were killed. Um, and she went down. As all this is going on to what would be the North Carolina's port side, here comes the three rogue torpedoes that missed Wasp. Uh, the Japanese submarine I-19 had no idea that there was another carrier battle group nine miles away. So those three rogue torpedoes, uh, one didn't hit anything. It ran its length and it fell. It ran out of fuel. The other torpedo hit the destroyer O'Brien. Uh, she received massive amounts of damage, but she was able to stay. She was able to, to break formation but stay afloat. But the third torpedo actually hit North Carolina. Um, as the North Carolina was starting to turn to the starboard side to match the turn of the carrier Hornet, uh, torpedo streaked in and hit below the water line, just below the number one gun turn on the port bow. Um, it ripped open a 32 foot by 18 foot hole in the side of the ship below the water line. And when the ship was hit, they were not at general quarters. Uh, there was, it went to general quarters, immediately after that, but so that you didn't have crews at, at stations. Uh, so when the ship was hit, she lost five sailors and 23 were wounded. Uh, the five sailors that were killed, Albert Geary was washed overboard. He was up, he was up on deck. Uh, and to hear these guys on, that was on the ship when she was torpedoed, they talk about the huge lurch that the ship took. They said it felt like the ship just jumped out of the water. Um, and you imagine you, a 35,000-ton battleship loaded, you know, she weighed 44,000, 45,000-ton battleship to be felt like it has picked up out of the water and slammed back down. You can imagine the what that must feel like. Uh, I, uh, horrifying. Yes. Um, Good God. And so Albert Geary was washed overboard. Uh, Oscar, Oscar Stone, Ingwald Nelson, William Skelton, Leonard Pone, uh, they were they were below decks. Uh, three of them were uh, doing tank sound uh, compartment sounding, so they were they were checking for watertight integrity, part of a normal everyday task that goes on for repair parties, 
you know, making sure the ship is watertight. They were doing just routine checks, and uh, the other sailor was actually up forward where y'all were at in the um, off tour areas for part of your investigation. The the head right. spaces or the forward showers, and they were, he was actually up there taking a shower when the torpedo hit, and that torpedo hit right there where they were at. Um, oh man! So he, that was the that was the five total kill when she was hit by a torpedo. Uh, at I'm the time, assuming they, that they're. I'm assuming that their passing was instantaneous because of the explosion. Yeah, they uh, they don't know. There's several uh, documented statements that as as the ship was hit, and they're immediately sprung into action, trying to maintain watertight integrity, start closing and locking the door the doors and the hatches leading up to that forward part of the ship. Uh, several yeah. of the sailors said they heard people banging trying to get out. Um, oh, I would man. imagine that the further up forward that you were, uh, they were probably killed pretty quickly, if not instantaneously. But uh, for the for the sailors to say they heard banging on compartments, I have no doubt that if you were further, if they were further back from the explosion, there's a very good chance that they they could have been alive. But it comes down to you have to secure the ship, and if you open that doorway or that hatchway, you're you're opening a a main opening to the sea at this point uh through uh rough uh measurements and and mathematics and damage control they they estimated the ship took on roughly a thousand tons of seawater uh from the torpedo hit that quick she, really that wow. quick absolutely um so a large portion of the port bow was flooded you gotta think it's all below the waterline anyway so there's really no way to to avoid that right um, she took a five and a half degree list to the port side, uh, and with a with any type of ship, any type of list is bad. It it decreases maneuverability, it slows you down, and for battleship, uh, what you know, and also is now a a, a slower target. So the focus <laughs> is to maintain speed, maintain maneuverability. So immediately, damage control parties went into action. Uh, they started uh, closing hatches, closing doorways, uh, shoring them up with timbers, reinforcing the bulkheads, reinforcing the decks and the overheads, and and then they started fighting fires. Well, not only did they have tons of seawater pouring in, they also had a fire concern because where that torpedo hit was just forward where the armor belt starts to begin, and the armor belt's really thin. It cracked the armor belt, and they had several fires up on third deck, and they were worried that the fires would spread into the main powder magazine of turret number one. So they ended up uh, evacuating the crews out of there, and they flooded the powder flats and the shell decks of the number one gun turret. So you've got the additional wet water weight in there at this point. So you've got a ship that's taking on a five-and-a-half-degree list to the port side. You've got all this water weight that's slowing the ship down in the bow. So now you've got a ship plunging through the water instead of sailing through the water smoothly as it should. So as the damage control parties, their main focus is to get the fires out and get the water off. So they went through. They had to estimate how much water they believe was on the ship. They counter-flooded the opposite side of the ship. And then that was all done. They got the ship back on an even keel, which is would be zero degrees um, and within five minutes. All of this is done extremely fast. So, so within five minutes, she was back on an even keel, and they were able to maintain speed. She never lost formation. She stayed with the carrier Hornet 
for several more hours until they could get a another ship in place to relieve her. So she stayed in place. And then once she got off of the, uh, once she got detached from the Hornet, uh, repair crews started pumping off the counter flooding water and was able to balance that weight with just transferring fuel oil. Uh, the North Carolina carried roughly 2 million gallons of fuel oil when she was full. So a lot of, lot of fluid weight a lot of fluid weight that you could move and shift around to keep the ship even. Uh, but the ship went to, from there, the ship was detached. She went to, uh, to log it, which was a, was, was a, um, forward base. They was able to send divers overboard to get a full extent of the damage. At this point, they had no idea how big the hole was. They honestly, they actually did not think it was that bad, uh, because of how they was able to fix the damage and, and shore it up. They sent divers overboard, and it was at that point they realized they had a hole that was 32 feet by 18 foot high, and you just can't oh, fix wow. that out in the middle of the South Pacific. So, <laughs> no, no. So she was, she, she was detached, and she went with a pair of escorting destroyers, and she sailed back to Pearl Harbor. Uh, at, while in route to Pearl Harbor, the divers that done the um, that studied the damage and took the measurements. A ship is divided into frames, frame one being at the bow, and in North Carolina's case, frame 178 at the stern. Uh, they take those frames, and they had they knew where the damage began and where it ended. So they took those frames, and they took the, the original ship's drawing schematics, sent them off, described the damage, and when the battleship arrived in Pearl Harbor, they had the new section of the ship there waiting on them. So it was already built, constructed, so North Carolina pulls in, She's put in dry dock. That damage is immediately cut out. That section of the ship is immediately cut out, and the new section is slid right in, almost like a puzzle piece. Uh, from the from the time of her reaching Pearl Harbor, she was back underway again in forty five days, and that is that is a complete fix of all the damage. Plus, while she was there, she received her first refit. So she received new radar. She received the new 40 millimeter anti-aircraft guns, and she received several of the several more of the 20 millimeter anti-aircraft guns. So she received this new outfit. She was painted, uh, new anti-aircraft equipment. She was repaired, new crew member, and then she was out to sea again. And all this was done within 45 days. That is crazy to, especially like taking into consideration the advancements that we've seen in, in, you know, mechanic, uh, uh me mechanical work in, you know, the last several decades to just think about like 45 day period, it kind of blows my mind, uh, that they were able to, to get it done that quickly. And that kind of, that kind of goes back to, um, we'll backtrack just a second. Um, the, the attack on Pearl Harbor, Admiral Yamato, Admiral Yamamoto, of the Japanese Navy, who was the mastermind who planned the attack, uh, he was completely against going to war with the United States. He did not want to do it. He had studied in the United States uh, many years before. He knew the industrial might of the United States at the time, and he warned against it. But the, his superiors uh, knew that it was inedible, and they knew that he could plan the attack. And immediately after the attack on Pearl Harbor, his famous words were, I feel we have awakened a sleeping giant and filled him with a terrible resolve. And that's exactly what happened. The the What he feared would come true was the powerful um, might of the United States economy and the 
uh, manufacturing processes that they knew we were capable of. And that just shows that for a battleship to have that type of damage to be repaired in 45 days. And also, all of the battleships that were sunk at Pearl Harbor, there was two that were were not able to be salvaged to Arizona and Oklahoma. All the other battleships that were sunk or had damage were all returned to service and fighting the Japanese prior to the end of the war. Right. Man, that's wild. But, um, so that was that was the, the torpedo hit on North Carolina. Um, she was as she returned to the fleet. Um, she was returned. She returned, and she took part in the Gilbert Islands campaign in nineteen in November and December of forty three, and most of that was uh, escort duty for the carrier groups. And December of forty three, she was uh, took place in the Neuro Island uh, bombardment, and then in January of forty four, she was assigned to the newly assigned newly designated Task Force thirty eight. 58. That was the one that had Admiral Halsey or Admiral Spruance, depending on which one was in command, depending on which one it was, uh, which one the call numbers they went by. And task force, that task force by the end of the war was the largest task force had, had ever been created. You got to imagine hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of ships assigned to these task force that the world had never seen. Battleships, carriers, cruisers, destroyers, escorts, the supply ships to keep up with this chain. So a massive armada of the U.S. naval might that it became to be. In uh, January and February of 1944, uh, she took part in the bombardment of the Marshall Islands. Uh, and then she also, between bombardments, took uh, escorted several carrier groups. In April of uh, 1944, the, the famous rescue by one of her Kingfisher pilots uh, took place April 30th. Lieutenant Burns was a Kingfisher pilot on North Carolina, and that's the float planes that sit on the fantail of the ship. Um, they mm-hmm. were out on uh, rescue duty for the day, and they could normally pick up. They could pick up one crew member. Uh, that was all because you had the pilot and the radioman slash gunner on the Kingfisher, and then they could pick up one downed aviator, fly them back to the ship, and never go back out. Uh, while they were out on duty uh, on station, he ended up rescuing ten. In down aviators, they was able. He couldn't take off at that point because they were overweight, uh, and he he got to each aviator by taxiing his aircraft through the water and picking up all these downed aviators. Uh, and at that point, the, the aircraft was so waterlogged and so overweight, they was able to taxi to the USS Tang, which was a submarine, offload all the passengers plus the crew of the aircraft, and um, the aircraft had to be had to be sunk by gunfire because it was so heavily damaged. But uh, uh, the pilot from the North Carolina rescued and 10 downed aviators. And there's a real famous picture of the Kingfisher floating through the water. It's got all these pilots hanging on to the wings of this, of this aircraft. If you could send me a link to that, I would, uh, I would love to post it in the feed or the, uh, sure. the show notes for this episode. That'd be great. Sure. I will. Um, and then uh, in June of 1944, uh, she took place in the Marianas invasion. Uh, and then June 19th, uh, she was escorting uh, carrier groups. And that June 19th through the 21st, 1944, that was the what came to be known later as the Mariana, the Great Marianas Turkey Shoot. That was what the pilots, the naval aviators, deemed it to be because the kill ratio was so high from U.S. Navy planes to the Japanese planes that one of the aviators who from down south said it was like shooting 
like an old fashioned turkey shoot. That was how easy it was to shoot down all the Japanese aircraft. So she was fishing a barrel. <laughs> fishing a barrel. She was there for the Great Marianas turkey shoot, providing uh, any aircraft cover, or if I'm sorry, any aircraft support for the carrier groups. Uh, after the Marianas turkey shoot, uh, she actually returned to the West Coast. Uh, she was ordered to Puget Sound for a major overhaul and refit. And that was the first time the North Carolina had been stateside since the beginning of the war when she transferred over in July 42. So two years later was the first time any of her crew went back stateside. And each of her crew, each of her crew members were given 25 days leave. And uh, she was in Puget Sound for an overhaul from July to September of 1944. And that's, uh, that's when you see the North Carolina's when she was painted in the camouflage scheme that you see today on the ship. That the measure thirty two, the, the camouflage is really broken up. Uh, new new paint scheme. She received additional anti aircraft guns, several hundred more crew to man those guns. New radar suits, new radar equipment, and then just a general overhaul of everything else on board the ship. Um, after her overhaul in December of nineteen forty four, she returned to the Pacific and supported the in um, the operations around the Philippines. Which is uh, for history for history people. This was the operations where MacArthur uh, began the operations to retake over the Philippines, um, where they abandoned the Philippines in the early part of the war. And then in December of '44, uh, she was with Task Force 38 when they were hit by the typhoon. Uh, they sailed right through the middle of a of a typhoon. They were hit head on. Uh, the North Carolina. In all in all, she had minimal damage. Uh, she lost a Kingfisher float plane, but this is a 45,000 ton battleship loaded. But the hurricane was the, the typhoon was so big that several of the smaller ships were sunk. Several small destroyers, destroyer escorts, and a couple of light carriers. Heavy damage, heavy damage to some of the other ships in the fleet. Uh, but as far as the North Carolina goes, just really minimal damage to lightweight stuff, topside gear. In February of 1945, the North Carolina took part in the bombardment for Iwo Jima um, to the days leading up and then provided close-in gun support for the ground for the Marines on the ground. And then in March and April, uh, she, was in, she ended up being there for 40 days total. The North Carolina participated in the Okinawa invasion, uh, providing bombardment and uh, bombardment and precision gunnery gunfire support for the Marines on the island. Uh, the pre-invasion bombardment on March 24th and a secondary bombardment a few days later, she fired in total 359 16-inch shells. Um, Good God. <laughs> so you, you, that's, a, that's, that's a lot of gunfire. and uh, That's a lot of boom. <laughs> that's a lot of boom. You can imagine, uh, we'll talk a little bit about the guns later, but you're you're they're they're shooting a 1,900 pound shell, you know, eight miles, and eight miles is is not that big a distance for those guns, almost point blank range, and you're taking this shell, and you're you're creating a crater the size of a city block, so anything that lands in or near is is now gone. Um, while she was off Okinawa, uh, you know, as, as history tells. Okinawa was really the first big time that the U.S. Navy had to deal with the, the kamikaze. Um, she was not hit by kamikaze, 
but with all the aircraft coming in and and diving towards ships, it really brought where any aircraft support was sent high previously. Now you've got sh- aircraft diving on plane on ships at low altitudes. About when they come in to get the ships on August sixth of nineteen forty five, while off of Okinawa, um, a Japanese plane had come in between the North Carolina and a destroyer, an escorting destroyer, and the destroyer's radar uh, picked up this aircraft. And when they swung around and fired a five-inch shell, they missed the aircraft but hit the North Carolina. Um, the North Carolina, if, if you're looking at the port side of the ship, mid right at midships, uh, which is there is a uh, five-inch range finder, and it was, it's Sky 2, and the five-inch shell hit the base of Sky 2, and it killed. And at the time, all of the anti-aircraft, they were at general quarters for anti-aircraft stations. So you got to imagine there's thousands of sailors out on deck, manning radars, manning gunnery systems, lookouts. There's people everywhere. There's sailors everywhere. So when that shell hit the base of Sky 2, uh, it sent shrapnel flying everywhere. It killed three sailors, and the sailors that were killed were Edward Edward Brin, John Watson, and Carl Karam Jr., and then wounded 44 others. And these wounded were everything from light cuts and scrapes to, to severely wounded sailors. Uh, you got to imagine a five-inch shell hitting and then tearing molten steel flying everywhere. Um, several years ago during a crew reunion, we had the, I had the honor to escort uh, a former sailor around, and his name was Harold Langmanet, and he was on board the battleship from 1943 to 1946, and his normal general corps station was, in a, was a trainer on a 16-inch gun. The trainer was the one that helped aim the gun. Uh, but when they were any aircraft general quarters, the 16-inch guns weren't needed. So he was a runner on the bridge. And we had we had uh, toured most of the ship, and we went up into the pilot house and around the navigation bridge. And we come out what would be the O4 level. So it's four levels above the main deck. It's an open bridge wing structure. Uh, we come out of the pilot house, and we was with Harold. And, and Harold, uh, if you knew Harold, um, he was always laughing and cutting up and just a great person to be around, had a great sense of humor and was a pleasure to talk to. But when we come out of that pilot house and we walked around the bridge wing, he stopped. We got 15 feet from the open doorway and when we got to where you could see sky too. He stopped and froze. And we just, we wasn't really sure what, what was going on. And, uh, we give him, just, he was just silent. And, uh, finally, and you could tell in his, I mean, you could look at Harold and know he was, something was running through his mind. And he said, guys, he said, I was standing right here when we took the friendly fire shell hit. And he said, feel a spot in my shoulder. And we, we felt this little knot on the back of his shoulder. And he was still carrying a shrapnel that he had in him all these years later from, from that event. Um, but one of his good friends was one of the guys killed. But when we got to that point on that bridge, strength, bridge structure and he stopped and froze, you could you could look at Harold and tell that he was he in his mind was taken back seventy five years later or earlier. It was it was that he was vivid. totally reliving the moment. It, it there was for, that vivid for in a, his a mind, and he said that that was the first time he had been up on the bridge since uh, he got out of the navy. 
So that was the first time in, in 70 plus years he had been in that spot since it, since he got off the ship. And you could tell that at that point in time, he was reliving that day, that moment, that vividly. And, and we just, we took a few minutes and uh, he, he told his story and then we went on. And then after we got off the bridge, he was back to normal himself, but it was just unique to see, uh, very humbling to be with that individual at that moment, Yeah, stood where he stood, where he stood and see his reaction and, and hear the story from his perspective. We, we can read it in the book. We can watch videos on it, but to get those firsthand accounts from the guys that seen it, that's, that is what we're there for is to keep their memory alive. That way generations don't forget the sacrifice that these guys paid. Which uh, that's a very solid point, and and I'm going to veer off on a tangent myself here for a second. This is something that I think collectively um, we're losing grip on. Um, and in the last several years, like I'm talking to, you know, I've I've had conversation with kids who are in high school, and you know, the the conversation of World War II somehow comes up, and how little is being taught about it these days it's, it's is not. actually very disturbing. It's to me. not. They, they hit yeah, the high points and they move on. They yeah. they hit the high yeah, points. It's, it's like one week in class they, they cover World War II. I don't even know if they cover so one week. We need week. to avoid this. Yeah, it's, you're right. They, it's, it's almost like an avoidance. Um, and, and I don't even know if they cover a week in it. I, I was, uh, being the history person that I am, specifically World War II, I was in high school. I remember the World War II days studying it. And, you know, I could – that's all I wanted to look forward to. And it was like we touched it and move on. And that's why I enjoy working with the ship and and getting these guys' stories because every year we do a reunion event, and we do it in April of every year. And they, the former sailors that can make it come back to the ship. And, I, and I've been doing the reunion events since 2014. And my first event, we had – I, I want to say we had roughly 15 sailors there that could make the trip and be there. And every year it has dwindled. And this year, uh, this past April, we had our reunion. There was one there, and it's it's sad to see because over the years we've become very good friends with these with these sailors and their families, and and to see the if you go on the several on the battleships Facebook and websites, you'll see reunion pictures and you'll see where they started these reunions in the I want to say the eighties, and it may have been earlier than that. And there's you know there's tons of former sailors there. And the numbers that we had when I started with the Living History crew, you know, 15 is a good number, you know. But now down to one that made the trip. It's just it's, it's sad. It's it's. And when those in five years, we will not have any World War Two veterans. It's they're all 98, maybe 96 on the low end, you know, give or take. But in five years. We're going to be the generation that has no World War II veterans. Yep. Yeah. No. It's this. This is something that's really been sinking in my mind for the last uh, couple of years. So, uh, friends, listeners, if any of you all have grandparents who were alive during this time period, please take a moment to sit down, learn from them, talk to them. This is. Uh, Halsey, you nailed it. We're not going to have many more of these firsthand accounts anymore, and we need to do better at listening and learning uh, as much as we possibly can while we do have the very few handful of people left that can tell us what what it was really like. 
Yeah. Yeah. And John and I both have a lot of family that, mm-hmm. uh, that were in the service and my, both of my grandparents were in the service. My, my, my one granddad was a force master chief and, um, in the Navy. And my other, uh, granddad was, a I, I believe he was a gunner's mate, um, in, in world war two. Um, and it is, it's a huge thing. I know my one grandfather makes it a very point. He's got a whole booklet of all his war, like everything he's done, all his accomplishments. And he makes it a point. Every grandchild has to sit down with him and, and shoot bourbon and just talk about it for like four hours. So it is something that touches my family a lot. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, steering steering the ship back in so to speak um uh back to the the history of the USS North Carolina where, where do we leave off there Halsey uh, I'm sorry we, we're almost we're almost there through her war years uh so she was uh she had the uh friendly fire incident and then she was there was not really major damage to the ship from that they was actually able to fix it underway and and what little damage was there. And if you, if you look at the battleship today, if you know where to look, you can actually still see the temporary patch that become the permanent patch on the base of sky two. It's, it's, you see the well, you see the weld spots. So you can see exactly what she was hit. Um, and then July 17th of 1945, uh, the North Carolina participated with, um, seven other U S battleships, them, what they had all been waiting for was the bombardment of homeland Japan itself. And they were their main target was the Hitachi Industrial Complex in East Honshu. And their average distance was 28,000 yards, which was roughly 14 miles, which is still not quite the, the full uh, distance that her guns are capable of. Some, some, there's some doc- documented shots at the 35,000 yards some a little bit closer, but again, their average distance was right at 14 miles or 28,000 yards. Um, and then through July and early August, um, more more bombardments, more bombardments of the homeland Japan, and then more carrier escorts providing an aircraft cover. And then on August uh, 15th, 1945, a ceasefire was announced. And that was, uh, obviously that was after the August 6th and 9th dropping of the atomic bombs. And August 15th was announced the ceasefire. Um, and then on September 2nd, 1945, uh, was the war's end. That was the, that, that was the official war's end. That was when the documents of surrender were signed on board the battleship USS Missouri. And the war was officially over. And a few days later, North Carolina dropped anchor in Tokyo Harbor to bring home her war. To, so she went from Pearl Harbor, arriving in Pearl Harbor in July 42, to dropping anchor in Tokyo Bay, September in early September, right after the document signed. So her her war come full circle. She'd seen almost from the very beginning to the very end. Uh, and then part of her crew was left behind. They took part of her crew, uh, volunteered to be part of the landing force and the um, occupation force of Japan. So they went on and they went on and, and were part of the landing force and they. They just were mainly a police force and helped in the helped in rounding up Japanese weapons and, and securing items of war, made sure they were disposed of and, and destroyed. And then on September sixth, uh, nineteen forty five, she hauled anchor and 
uh, left and had uh, was dis- was ordered to the Atlantic coast, and she was going home. So she left on September 6th, and she arrived in Boston Harbor on October 17th to the huge welcoming home- homecoming parties and parades that were that were of the homecoming fleets and soldiers and sailors from around the world. Uh, so she went through several um, parades. She, she participated in um, Navy Day in October 45, which was a, was a, was a massive flotilla parade of warships. Um, and then November of 45 through June of 1947, her career was pretty much winding down to an end. There was obviously no com- – there was no wars going on, so her combat days behind her. Um, and the, she participated in two midshipman cruises for Annapolis. So the midshipman um, sailors from – midshipman candidates from Annapolis, they took two cruises on North Carolina over the course of the next two years. And then in, on June 27th, 1947, she was decommissioned and laid up in mothballs in Bayonne, New Jersey. And as I mentioned earlier, part of her early decommissioning – was because of her speed. Even though she was a fast battleship, she could really only do 27, 26, 27 knots. The Iowa class battleships, the late, the the latest and the greatest class of battleships, could do thirty three knots, and they could keep up with American carriers. So they and they were they were much bigger. They was almost one hundred and fifty feet longer than North Carolina. They were massive oh, wow. warships. Okay. Uh, so right after the war, the Navy was downsizing very fast. So there was no need for the at the time, all the navies of the world combined did not equal the might of the U.S. Navy. So that's how large the yeah. U.S. Navy was. So immediately after the war, downsizing began. Older ships were decommissioned. I mean, days after the war, ships were being decommissioned. And then North Carolina, she her time coming forty seven, um, and she was decommissioned. And that that pretty much takes us to the service career of the North Carolina. Well, that's. Uh- that's one heck of a, I mean, a, a very, very short time in its active duty, but holy hell, that was a whole lot of action that it saw. And um, it, um, again, it was definitely a game changer for the U.S. Navy and uh, the war efforts globally as a whole. Um, it was it was impressive, that's for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, such a decade. Just such a decade of, of advancement and change and... There's so much going on. Like I, I, like you said, the ship was out for two years, like without returning stateside. You know, like that and that in itself being in that environment, I think would be crazy. Yeah, just kind absolutely. of floating around, seeing where you need to go. You know, active. Quite a colorful history for the ship itself, but uh, something that we didn't tap into that I'd, I'd like to talk about before we we get into. Um, you know, where the ship is now and what's going on with it is uh, talk a little bit about what life on the ship was like, which I got to admit was one of my favorite parts of the tour whenever you walked us through it. I had no idea. <laughs> like, this place is a floating city, basically. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, <laughs> And it blew my mind uh, to find out that there were, <laughs> there were shoemaker shops and that there <laughs> like tailors and stuff like that on there. It's, yeah. it's not something I was expecting. So you can imagine, and it's, it's the same day for modern warships too. You know, you have to have everything on board ship that you would have in your hometown uh, or, or, you know, to, to do a service. So, you know, this is 19, 
This is the 1940s for the battleship North Carolina. So everything that was on, everything that you can imagine in a 1940s hometown is on board the battleship. Barber shops, tailor shops, cobbler shops, laundry, machine uh, shops, woodworking shops, uh, incinerator for trash, ice cream, ice cream mm-hmm. shop, uh, what's called the gear dunk. Uh, now that... That one cracked me up when I found out there was an actual ice cream shop on it. Like it, I seriously made me chuckle a yeah, little and, bit. And ice cream shops were unique on certain ships. So only capital ships and submarines were built with ice cream machines. Capital ships being uh, the larger vessels, battleships, aircraft carriers, and then for morale, submarines had ice cream makers as well. Uh, talk a little bit about ice cream. And I'm not sure if we talked about this that night. So your smaller ships, cruisers and destroyers, they didn't they didn't have ice cream makers. So you can imagine ice cream was a big morale booster for sailors. So whenever a pilot would go down and the submarines or the, the destroyers had to rescue down pilots or rescue people that fell overboard, it became a thing that for those smaller ships to return the pilots to the carriers or the sailors to the ships that they fell off of, to get their their personnel back, they had to exchange ice cream. So the, <laughs> really, the going rate for a pilot off of a carrier was five gallons of ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's hilarious. Really, it's wow. People are worth ice cream. That is that's hysterical. <laughs> but they, uh, I mean, they. It was really interesting to hear uh, about how much they they tried to make it like a a, a livable space. You know, like right. I, I remember walking through one of the mess halls and they had the uh, the pull down screen where they would show movies and kind of turn it into a theater for an evening. Yeah, so. one of the one of the mess decks on North Carolina had a projector room, and you know, that, in the grand scheme of things, that space is very small, um, so you couldn't get but a a small amount of number in there to watch movies and, and shows. Uh, so that was, that was done in bad weather. But if it was, if it was nice weather out and the ship was anchored somewhere in a Harbor, such as Ulithi, they would hang a projector screen from the uh, crane on the fantail and they would, they could play movies on the fantail. And, you know, you could, you could at that point have, have a lot more sailors out back watching the movie. Uh, there was a projector room also up in the aft superstructure that would project to a, a large screen. But also you had uh, your master at arm shack, which was your po- what would be your police force um, on board ship. You had your damage control lockers, which would be your fire fire stations on board ship. You had damage control central, which would what we as civilians would call our 911 center. You call them for an emergency. You had um, different... If you could imagine it, it was on board ship. Um, and then every birthing space had a head with, with showers and with toilets. Uh, and then you slept with your division. Your your birthing space was, was for your division. And if if you didn't go outside of your division's birthing space, if if I'm in our division and you're in S division, we I didn't go to your birthing space, just like you didn't go to my birthing space. It was, uh, it was your space. That was where you went. Um, another unique thing about jumping real quick back to design of the North Carolina, um, she was one of the first classes. That she, she, I believe she was the first class of battleship to be built with mess decks or the galley space. The 
older style dreadnought style battleships, the a department the department heads would designate somebody at, at meal times to go get the food and bring it back to the designated birthing area. Birthing areas being where they slept. And so the North Carolina had actual mess decks. Which was uh, a, a new a, a new feature for, for, for ships at the for, time. For yeah. ships, coming into the ships, yes, sir. Especially for battleships. Okay. Um, and then, but yeah, and then you would have, you would have workshops. Everything that had to function had a shop to fix it. So you had, you had workshops for the 20 millimeter guns. You had workshops for the 40 millimeter guns. You had electronic workshops. You had motor workshops. You had electrical rewind shops. Anything that could break or need to be fixed had somewhere it could go on board ship to be fixed. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I, again, it really was just, it was a full blown floating city. Like everything you could possibly imagine or would need was, it was there. It was there and provided for. But, um, you know, these are some of the details that you don't ever really hear about, uh, unless you actually get the opportunity to go on one of these tours and actually see the ship firsthand and get a little bit more of the history behind it because it's, uh, you know, it's usually always so focused on the actual uh, battle engagements and things like that that you do kind of forget that there were thousands of people packed into these places living together. And um, so you don't really hear too much about what happens below decks. You only right. hear about, you know, the engagements. Right. So, uh, again, I, I got to thank you. Like, the tour that you gave us was very eye-opening uh, in, in everything from – what it was like to live on the ship to, wow, talk about your ancient computers, right? <laughs> right. So all of the uh, main battery systems, what what aims and fires the 16 and 5-inch guns are these massive analog computer setups. And I think y'all y'all were down there in part of it. We walked through there and, and just done a, a brief overview of what each one does. And that was... 1930s technology to design and build these pieces of equipment and everything everything has to be input range target speed bearing wind speed your direction your speed all of this stuff had to be put into these massive analog computers by gears and cogs and it would when you put all this in it would give you a firing solution and it had to be accurate enough for the 16 inch guns to fire a 2,700 pound or a 1,900 pound shell, 19 to 21 miles, depending on the shell. And it's not, that's not something you can see when you're standing on board ship you're, or imagine standing on the beach, your, your, your line of sight falls off about between 12 and 14 miles. That's just the curvature of the earth. So you're firing beyond what you can see. And that's done with radar and with elevated spotting scopes, which was the rangefinders. But they could only go out so far. So the long, the long term, the long range shots were all done by rain, uh, by radar or by some type of artillery spotting, whether it be the aircraft or somebody on the ground. That that, but that had to be all the information had to go into it to launch this to fire this shell. I won't say launch to fire the shell at that type of distance. And the effort that had to have had to have gone into, um, you know, getting those uh, those firing coordinates like accurate, it's still kind of it melts my brain a little bit as you were talking about it. And 
like seeing these quote unquote computers and and folks, I will post pictures uh, of this as this episode airs so you can see what we're talking about. But the amount of effort and communication between all of these people in order to create a accurate firing uh, direction is pretty astounding. Um, because I, even if you talk about radar, radar back then is not like what we have now. It, it, it was radar is new, advanced. Yeah. It was brand yeah. new then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was completely different animal than the ease of access that we have to it now with um, with all of the the different forms of data that we can do to create these images for for accuracy. This was totally new waters, so to speak. Um, but yeah, that was that was just absolutely fascinating, and um, you know, I again, I I can't wait to go back and and visit this place again. Not only to do another dive into the history and also do another investigation, but it truly is a, a wonder of mechanics. Even though by today's standards, it's it's you know we've moved on, we've we've tapped into other uh, forms of uh, you know technology, but. At the time, it was so far advanced, and one of the things that made it so advanced for its time was how well everyone on that ship worked together in order to make it work. And right. it's it's a level of camar- camaraderie and um, and teamship that you just don't find, you know. <laughs> and and speaking on that, uh, the North Carolina at towards the end of the war, so the ship was designed to carry 1,900 sailors. Um, and that was in her early configuration, 1941. As we mentioned in her history, we talked about all these refits and yard periods that she went through. And every time I mentioned that radar was added and aircraft guns were added, equipment was added. So every time they added something, they had to add people to go with it. So she was designed for 1,900. At the end of the war, she had 2,339 sailors. So you've got almost almost 500 sailors that have to go somewhere. And so where do you put them? So yeah. if you, one of the unique things about the battleship, the North Carolina class, if you tour any of the other battleships, uh, what's unique to the North Carolina class is you'll see a lot of spaces like in the tailor shop or the cobbler shop. When we were, when y'all were on tour with us, I pointed out that there was racks in those workspaces that was part of the solution for the North Carolina class battleship was, well, we don't, we don't have anywhere to put them. So these spaces that are open during the daytime hours, that's where you're going to sleep. <laughs> so the guys that worked in these spaces also slept in these spaces. Um, so that's, so spaces like the, the tailor shop, the cobbler shop, um, and, and other spaces throughout the ship that, you know, ship service, that's where if you would work there during the daytime and you would sleep there during the nighttime. And that was part of the fix to that problem. To whereas if you go on the battleship Alabama or Massachusetts or an Iowa class battleship, and they've been, Iowa's have been so heavily modernized because they served up through the 1990s. Um, you don't have that. Uh, the Alabama, the battleship Alabama and the battleship Massachusetts, they're part of the South Dakota class battleship. So they followed the North Carolina class. A little bit different design. Uh, they look they look different. Uh, they was a little bit shorter, but they were designed to hold 2,200 sailors, I believe. Don't don't quote me on the sailor the total amount, but if you look in their workshops, they don't they have they don't have all these racks and 
birthing spaces in every workshop because they were designed with larger birthing spaces and, and tighter birthing spaces. I give it that the birthing spaces on the following class of battleships were much tighter because they packed more in versus what we would call the wide open spaces of the North Carolina class. Well, I'm sure as the advancements in technology came, um, they were able to kind of compact it all as well. So um, you could kind of fit things into smaller areas and therefore cut back on the amount of manpower needed to run them. They, um, if it's, it's interesting to look at the North Carolina class versus the South Dakota class. Um, and then the huge Iowa class. So you had North Carolina class first, and they was the first, as mentioned, the first class of fast battleships. So that was the stepping stones for the, uh, the following classes of ships. So then you have the North Carolina class at 729 feet long. They weighed, we'll just use empty weight, 35,000 tons. And then you have the South Dakota class. These ships are 684 feet long, I believe, so they're shorter. And if you look at them, they're, they're just, it's like they cut out the middle section and put them together. Um, so much shorter ship, but they were built from the ground up with a, with the, they had the exact same main armor, 16 inch. They had the exact same number of secondary armor, five inch, 25 inch guns or in 10 quad, uh, 10 double mounts. Um, and they had just as many sailors. But their design was so different that it allowed them to function. But if you go on board these ships, the layout is just, you can't even compare that they have the exact same amount of equipment and they can do the exact same thing. And they were built within two years of one another. But as technology advanced, they was able to, and they were still built under the London Naval Treaty as well. Um, so they cut those ships down in length to add weight for armor. So they weigh virtually the same thing empty, but what weight they saved by making them shorter, they added it to have a main armor system capable of withstanding a 16-inch shell. So they were armored against what they could put out versus the North Carolina being armored against 14-inch shells and carrying 16-inch guns. Huh, okay, interesting. And then you have the then you have the massive Iowa class battleships, which were eight hundred and eighty some feet long, so they're roughly one hundred and fifty feet longer than North Carolina. Massive battleships. They weighed forty five thousand tons empty, over fifty five thousand tons fully loaded. They were massive warships. They come online in forty four through the end of the war. There was four of them, and because they were so much larger. They served on and off through the rest of the 20th century. All four of them were brought back into service in the 1980s. Heavily modernized. If you go on board one today, you pretty much get a, 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 a glimpse of what it's like on a modern-day warship. Uh, they, they took off all of her anti-aircraft weaponry from World War II. She carries uh, Tomahawk cruise missiles, phalanx, and phalanx weapon systems, everything that what a modern ship in the eighties and nineties would have had updated birthing spaces, just exterior. They look similar to what they were in world war two, but interior wise, completely different new armor armament systems. She retained, they retained their three 16 inch gun turrets and they retained six of the 10 five inch gun mounts. But other than that, they lost a lot of stuff post world war two. Yeah. Okay. But because they were so much larger, 
they were allowed, they had the deck space to carry this new equipment. That's why the North Carolina class and the South Dakota class were decommissioned so early after the wars. They didn't have the speed. They didn't have the deck space to whereas the Iowa class had the speed and the deck space for future advancement. Okay. All right. Interesting. Well, Halsey, we're, uh, we're slowly coming up on our time limit here, but before we uh, close out this conversation, I, I want to take a little bit of time to talk about uh, the USS North Carolina's life after war. Sure. Um, in particular, like, I mean, it was decommissioned in uh, 1947 and was placed in inactive reserve fleet uh, in Bayonne, New Jersey for about 14 years. Is, is that right? That's correct. So in 1960, the U.S. Navy announced that they had plans to scrap the North Carolina and the Washington. Um, and a group in North Carolina, uh, headed by James Craig Jr. and Hugh Morton, they they got the idea and the ball rolling to let's start a Save Our Ship campaign. And through that campaign, they targeted school children. And through targeting that, they uh, they they had school children save dimes and pennies and nickels. It was basically their lunch money. And, and donate to the ship. And there's there's a list of names on, on the ship of all these school children and the counties they were from, where they donated from. And through those fundraisers, they was able to raise $330,000 to transfer ownership and tow the ship from Bayonne, New Jersey, to Wilmington, North Carolina. Um, and then through, through that fundraiser, the kids that uh, donated – their names were taken and they were put down and all the kids got a free admission to the ship. So by that, now you've got kids with a free admission. So what, what more are we going to do? Well, now the family's going to load up and take a trip to the battleship. So you've got your free admission ticket, but now you've got the admission price of everybody that's coming to the battleship. So that was a way to get people to come to the battleship and support the museum in the early days. Uh, so she was uh, in September, 1961, she was towed out of Bayonne. Um, and October, uh, October 2nd of 1961, she arrived in Wilmington and was placed in her current berth just as she sits today. And on April 29th, 1962, she was open, open to the public for tours and has been opened ever since, uh, except for during storms and times that the ships had to be closed. All right. Yeah, of course. Uh, it was fascinating that they were able to to build up such uh, community effort in order to to save it, and I'm so glad that they did um, for many reasons. Um, it it is a delightful visit. Like what you know, obviously this is a paranormal show. This is why we chose this location. But if you're just a history fan and have respect for your country and and uh, understand the history of world war two, this is a place you need to go. Like you definitely have to go check this out. North Carolinian people. I'm talking to you. If you haven't been there, make the pilgrimage. You will not regret it. Besides it's an excuse to go to Wilmington. Who doesn't want that? Absolutely. She is, she is the, uh, she is the memorial to all the North Carolina service members of world war two and the memorial to the roughly 10,000 North Carolinians that were killed in World War II. So she is the official memorial for the state of North Carolina for that time period of, of all that North Carolina lost in the effort that North Carolina put into World War II. Um, and it's, it's a place like no other. The history there, the you can walk you can walk and see where they worked and lived every day. So how can, uh, uh, how can the public uh, support um, the USSNC these days? Um, what can we do to help? 
Absolutely. So the the main thing is go visit. Uh, ticket sales, go visit the ship. Uh, they'll ask for a donation and, and, and donate. So when you buy your ticket, they ask for a donation to go straight towards restoration. And and those everything they bring in through the ticket window and through special programs, whether it be hidden battleship firepower or or these paranormal events, everything that's taken in has goes to functioning the ship. Um, and it's not it's not cheap to maintain a warship, especially one that's seven hundred twenty nine feet long. It's it's a massive undertaking. Um, but if you go to the battleship's website and go to the events calendar, you can see everything that's going on. Uh, the battleship has several events planned through the rest of the year. On November 25th, coming up, we have Battleship Ho Ho Ho. It's uh, time the kids come out. You can uh, track Santa Claus in combat information. Uh, you can, uh, on November 5th, they have the Raise the Flag. So you can fly a flag over on the North. On, you can fly an American flag in honor of somebody and for with a $40 donation and you get to keep that flag and a certificate and take it home with you on December 3rd, our unit with the LH, our living history crew, we have battleship alive and that's eight to five and we'll all be there in our world war two uniforms interpreting the ship. And then on Wednesday, December 7th, uh, we have the Pearl Harbor remembrance day. Uh, the North Carolina Azalea coast amateur radio club will be on board the ship. They'll have, one of the original radio spaces opened up and they'll be broadcasting radio signals to, to and from other radio radio operators throughout whoever's listening in the world. They'll be talking to other ship museums. Um, and it's just a fun experience. You can come on board and, and see how some old equipment that still works functions. Uh, so that's scheduled throughout the year. Um, and then just keep a check on the battleships, Facebook and the battleships website under upcoming events. And as the, we get closer to 2023, the events calendar will be updated, and, I, and and if you're a battleship enthusiast or a history enthusiast or just somebody that wants something to do while you're down in the eastern part of the United uh, eastern part of North Carolina, come on out to the battleship. Um, we'd love to have you. We'd love to uh, educate you a little bit about the ship and our service and answer any questions you might have. That's that's I couldn't have said it better myself, folks. I, I seriously do encourage you all to go and. Uh, check out the museum, go take the tour, go engage with uh, the battleship and its caretakers. It's a delightful experience. Whether you're going there to chase ghosts or just want to sink into a piece of history, it is truly a, a sight to behold. It's a phenomenal experience. Um, Halsey, again, I can't thank you enough for uh, all of the input that you've given us. I'm going to add um, all of the links to everything that we've talked about tonight in the show notes for our listeners, and I will definitely be directing them to you guys to go and uh, support and help. And for those of you interested that are in the area, the XV Planets team will be returning in February of uh, 2023. So if you want to be a part of that crew, drop me a line at xvplanets at gmail.com, and we'll see what we can do. Halsey, I want to thank you again so much for coming to join us tonight. It means the world to us. Honestly, I wish we could keep going on this, but unfortunately I'm on a time constraint in order to get this episode out by, before midnight tonight. But I cannot thank you enough for all of your insight and your uh, the information that you brought. Your knowledge of this ship is truly uh, amazing. Um, I, Walker and I could have rambled about this stuff for an hour and a half, and we wouldn't even have hit 25% of what you nailed. So 
thank you so much for uh, taking the time and, and coming to talk with us. Absolutely. I appreciate you having me on and I hope that uh, it's everything that y'all want it to be. And I look forward to seeing y'all back in February. And, and for all your listeners, I look forward to seeing them and meeting them on board the battleship. Yeah, absolutely. And if they come, uh, guys, if you go, you tell them I send you. All right, Halsey, thank you so much for joining us. We will definitely talk to you soon, and we'll probably have you back on the show if you're open to it on a, a follow-up uh, whenever we come back and visit in February. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I'd like to thank Walker and especially Halsey for joining me this evening as we dug into the past of the USS North Carolina. Join us again in two weeks for the review of our investigation on the ship, which I must say was very, very different from some of the other heavier ones that we've done in the last year. A much more pleasant experience, to be honest. If you'd like more content in the meantime, please consider supporting us and subscribing at www.patreon.com slash xvplanis. Beginning next week, we'll be releasing a new series exclusively on our Patreon feed called Transmissions from the Void, which will be an interview series that focuses on paranormal experiences from all walks of life. And if you, dear listener, happen to have a story that you'd like to share, send us an email at xvplanis at gmail.com and maybe we'll invite you on for an interview. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Twitch, everywhere as XVPlanus, and you can follow my personal misadventures and music projects at Folds and Floods on those same platforms. Links for both are in the show notes. If you like what we do here, head on over to iTunes or Spotify to rate and review us, and tell your friends about us. Tell your families about us. Hell, yell at random people at your Halloween party about us. Once again, you can support us by going to www.patreon.com slash xvplanus and subscribing to gain access to our exclusive content. Be sure to check out all of the great shows on the Green Mushroom Podcast Network, like Grognostics, Ad Hoc History, Administrism, and more. You can find them by going to www.tgmpodcastnetwork.com. This show is produced in Durham, North Carolina, and is written, edited, and scored by yours truly. Music from the show can be found on my Bandcamp page for Folds and Floods or anywhere you stream your music. No part of this show or its music may be reproduced without my explicit consent. Copyright Folds and Floods Productions. Once again, I am your host, Flood. This has been XV Planus. Thank you for being a part of the journey so far. I'll see you in the between. In Abambratio, Inflectus, Subvelo. <laughs>